The countdown to summer is on. Wenatchee Apple Sox Baseball returns on June 2nd, and it's time to meet the newest members of the 2023 team with this week's roster release. Here are your hosts, the voice of the Apple Sox, Joel Norman, and head coach, Mitch Darlington. Just one week to go. We're almost there at last. Just one week to go until the start of the 2023 Wenatchee Apple Sox baseball season. Hi everyone, I'm Joel Norman, and yes, today is going to be a little bit more of a look at some new players joining the Apple Sox, but only two players to really highlight this week. Got a lot of exciting stuff to come on this podcast. Mitch Darlington will be joining us in just a little bit to give his take on the two players signed to join the team this week. And then after that, we're going to hear from John White, the supervisor of umpires for the West Coast League, to get a little bit of his take on some of the rule changes that are coming. Not necessarily rule changes, they're more pace of play rules that are being added into play for this 2023 season. I think this is going to be a good way for people, if you have any questions about what to expect here at the summer collegiate baseball level, what we're going to see in the West Coast League, whether it's at home, whether it's on the road. This is going to give you a good answer to a lot of those questions. So I think you're going to enjoy that a little bit. We'll be hearing from him in just a little bit. But so much going on right now with the start of the season almost here. As I mentioned, the roster pretty much all filled up. These two players being signed this week, we are hoping are the last two roster signings before the season begins that we have to announce and after that, it's going to be go time. Season opens up June 2nd, a couple Fridays from now, in which the Apple Sonics will take on the Bend Elks down at Vince Gennis Stadium for three games down there. Home opener coming up at Paul Thomas Senior Stadium on June 6th. Before then, though, it's worth noting there is going to be an exciting event coming up at Paul Thomas Senior Stadium. Maybe you're making your way out here if you're a family or friend of a, a player joining the team or perhaps you're already living in Wenatchee and uh, listening to the podcast. Don't forget, our Fan Fest is going to be on June 1st at Paul Thomas Senior Stadium, of course, on the campus of Wenatchee Valley College. The Fan Fest, it's so funny, cheers. It's kind of a great way to welcome everyone back to the ballpark. Get that real first taste of summer. And literally, in a lot of ways, we are going to have free burgers and hot dogs available at the ballpark for that one. But it's a nice chance to come out, watch the team practice, and even meet the team a little bit as well. The Fan Fest is going to run from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at Paul Thomas Senior Stadium, completely free to attend. So bring your fan, your friends, uh, family members with you, and just come on out. You get a chance to watch the Apple Sox practice. And then probably that final half hour or so of it, the players are going to come up and they're going to mingle and kind of meet and greet with a lot of fans. And it's, it's just a great opportunity. It's, it's a lot of returning players to this team. There's 10 guys on this summer's team who have previous experience play for, playing for the Apple Sox. But this is just a new opportunity to get to meet uh, some of the new guys and also get to see those guys who you're you're used to seeing as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Don't forget to miss th- don't miss that on June first at Paul Thomas Senior Stadium Fan Fest from six to seven thirty p.m. Let's dive into the roster announcement now as we take a look at the two players being added to the Apple Sox this week. The first one is Toby Herrer. He is a right-handed pitcher who's currently at Kansas, although he is transferring. He's going to be heading to Central Arizona, which is you're going to hear from Coach Darlington just a little bit, a great junior college program, won the JUCO World Series last year. But Herrer has you know, pitched in a few games this spring with the Jayhawks before he's looking to transfer. He's from Scottsdale, Arizona. Four appearances, three and a third innings with one hit, four runs allowed. And again, not a ton of sample size, but the seven walks and five strikeouts in there. Just 19 hitters that he has faced here this spring. So he will be looking to transfer 
over to Central Arizona. Hasn't pitched since April 18th. Now, a lot of team seasons are winding down or are complete. Kansas is still in action. Uh, they're competing in the Big 12 tournament here this week, so they are still in action. He, he could get into another game. We don't know, the obviously, the specifics, and a lot of times at the college level, when there are injuries, it's not something that's exactly made available for everyone to be aware of. Not like There's no public injured list the way there is in Major League Baseball, so if he's injured or whatever, he could get into some action, but we will see. He, he's a guy who Coach Darlington is going to say, you're going to hear in a moment, it's going to say that he'll be here to start the season with the Apple Sox, and he's going to have an interesting opportunity to create, to create a really big role for himself on this summer squad. Let's hear from the head coach of the Apple Sox, Mitch Darlington, about our first signing of the two this week. Toby is a freshman at uh, the University of Kansas. He will be transferring, however, to Central Arizona next year. So, you know, if you if you listen to the podcast before, uh, Central Arizona baseball uh, is one of the premier junior colleges in the country. You know, they're the defending national champions. They had a real good season this year, just fell short of going back to the World Series. So Toby will be headed there next year. Sounds like he's a guy that really fills up the zone three pitches for strikes. So really, really, he'll have a good chance to be a starter for us uh, as he heads out here to Wenatchee. Coming out of high school, he was very highly recruited, was the 12th best right-handed arm coming out of Arizona um, in high school. So, you know, the talent is there. Uh, it's just putting it all together and uh, and making things happen, which I think he's going to get that shot here in Wenatchee. I think uh, we're going we're gonna to let him get a start here early on in the season. He'll be a day one guy, probably be shut down around 30 innings this summer, but we're excited for the time that we're going to get to have Toby with us and and uh, really excited to see what he can do on the mound, man. I mean, th- three pitches for strikes, uh, fastball curve, change up, you know, so it kind of screams uh, a starting role for you, but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see as we, uh, as we get along here with Toby. That's the head coach of the Apple Sox, Mitch Darlington, chatting about Toby Harrow, the first of the two pitchers being signed this week. And I think you'll be pretty excited by the second one. If you're familiar with the Apple Sox from a year ago, Wodanchi is bringing back Jake Putnam to pitch for a second year in a row. How exciting is that to have him back? And it's going to be really fun because he is going to be part of the second set of brothers who will be playing for the Apple Sox. You may be familiar with this already, but Earlier in this this spring, we had Jake on the podcast to chat about the team signing his brother, Nick, and I couldn't really mention it at the time, but after he and I got done talking on our Zoom call for that podcast, one of the things Jake told me was, hey, you never know, you might get a chance to see me again here this summer, and that was pretty exciting to hear. He had such a fun summer for the Apple Sox, played such a big role on last summer's team, and was kind of teasing it at the time, and now that's going to be the case. Jake is going to play for the Apple Sox this summer, and boy, he's going to come in pretty fresh. Uh, he did, he's only appeared so far this spring, and you know Santa Clara, again, still in action. They won their West Coast Conference tournament opener against Gonzaga on Wednesday. Uh, he's only pitched in a couple of games, though, this this season for for Santa Clara. Two appearances in total, just one inning of work. And it's interesting, you know, Jake was such a big part of last summer's Apple Sox team, played such a huge role as that closer, led the team in saves as well, and has just not really, for whatever reason, hasn't really worked into the the pitching action at all this season for, for Santa Clara. He's only, as I mentioned, appeared in the two games. But a summer ago, the Apple Sox had 12 appearances in Wenatchee, and with him, 
in this situation where his arm is pretty fresh, I imagine we're going to get to see him pitch a lot again this summer, and it's going to be fun to see him work. He had a 4.03 ERA last year, 2-1 record in 12 games, and had three saves as well with the Apple Sox. 29 innings pitched, he struck out 31, walked 14, and allowed 19 base hits. What a phenomenal summer that was for Jake Putnam. As I mentioned, the only the three saves, that did lead the team, but he was in that back-of-the-bullpen role. And boy, it was so fun to watch him come out of the pen because so many of his appearances were multi-innings of work. You see a lot of closers come in. Maybe they just get the ninth inning. Maybe they get an out or two in the eighth inning if necessary. But Putnam was a guy who came in and he would go multiple innings. He had a couple times he went three and a third. In fact, that was his season high, and he did it three consecutive games that he pitched in. July 24th, July 29th, and August 2nd last summer. Three straight outings of three and a third in relief. I think the most impressive one of those three was the one on August 2nd. That was a game against Yakima Valley. and Oh, man, that was one of my favorite games of last summer despite the result. The Apple Sox would ultimately ultimately lose in that game in 12 innings, but they were able to get such such an impressive effort from Putnam out of the bullpen to really keep them in that game. Jake Putnam came on in that game to start or in the middle of, rather, the 6th inning. No, it was the 7th inning, beg your pardon. He came on in the 7th inning, tossed the, got the final out of it, tossed the 8th, tossed the ninth, and then tossed the 10th. And at that point, I mean, he had already thrown 53 pitches at the bullpen. So that, it was understandable. The Apple Sox did make a pitching change, and obviously they, they fell shortly after that in the 12th inning. So not the result they wanted in that game, but a remarkable effort out of the bullpen that night from Jake Putnam, and just such a key piece of that Apple Sox team all year. Did pitch in one postseason game against Bellingham. You know, Before that, though, it was just so many other fantastic outings and really made his mark on that team as a multi-inning guy out of the bullpen. In fact, he only had two appearances last, three appearances, rather, of his, of his 12 from last summer, well, 13 if you want to include the playoffs. Three of his 12 appearances, he tossed exactly one inning or less, none of less than getting at least three outs in it. So, so fun to see him work last summer. Can't wait to have him back this year. And let's hear a little bit now from the head coach of the Apple Sox, Mitch Darlington, about bringing back Jake Putnam. Jake is a very talented right-handed arm uh, out of Santa Clara. Just, just an absolutely phenomenal human being is the first thing I would say about Jake. Man, it's not even the talent on the field; it's it, it's the person he is. It's a uh, who he is in the clubhouse, who he is on the field, uh, and you know, and who he is off the field. He was one of our biggest leaders last year. C- kind of got our whole pitching staff to buy in towards the end of the season, as we went on our playoff run, and and just a guy that's completely bought into to playing winning baseball. You know, he's one of those guys that he, he's not as concerned with the stats as he is with did our team get a W tonight. And when and when you get a team with with a mixture of those guys. That's when you really got something special. So uh, very happy to have Jake Putnam coming back to Wenatchee and, uh, you know, obviously excited to, to see what he can do for us again in that kind of a late inning closer role that, that he served last year for us. I mentioned it a little bit before, but Putnam is one of two Putnam brothers on this team. His younger brother, Nick, is also on the squad. And then it's the second set of brothers, the other one, the, the Oland brothers, both of them catchers, Austin from Central Washington, and Carson, who was an incoming freshman at the University of Washington, 
I, I've been mentioning this to, to Mitch ever since we thought there was a possibility that Jake would be joining this team, but I really hope we get an opportunity at some point this summer to see Jake on the mound and Nick catching him. And frankly, with how talented those two guys are, it wouldn't be surprised if that's pretty early on into both of their tenures. It's obviously going to depend on their arrival times, but really looking forward to seeing those two get a chance, hopefully, to work together over the course of the summer. Attention sports fans, get ready for the biggest event of the summer, the Apple Sox home opener on June 6th. And don't forget, Thursdays are Thirsty Thursdays at the ballpark. Enjoy the game with a cold drink in your hand. With general admission tickets for only $3 and drink discounts, it's the perfect way to spend a summer evening with friends and family. Individual tickets go on sale May 14th, so mark your calendars and get ready to root for the home team. For more information, visit applesox.com. Those are the only other two additions to mention for this Apple Sox team since our last podcast. So just Toby Herrer and Jake Putnam this week, a pair of right-handed pitchers. Herrer, again, kind of slotted for that opportunity to compete for a starting rotation role. And Putnam, a guy who's going to be likely in the same spot as he was in last year. Back of the bullpen guy who can toss a couple of innings and hopefully lock down that closer's role once again for the Apple Sox. So two additions and pretty much set for the roster. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar, it's certainly common in this week leading up to the first game of the season for a couple of guys to drop out. Maybe they pitched a little bit more in the spring than their college coaches anticipated. Maybe they just need a little extra rest. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes position players, same thing. Maybe they played a couple more games than expected, and they get shut down for the course of the summer. So we're awaiting to see if anything like that will happen with the Apple Sox, but as of right now, the roster is set and ready to go. All we need now is for the team to get into Wenatchee. A lot of those guys will be flying in over the next uh, few days or so, going to be in by May 31st and June 1st, those couple days there to get set for the start of the season. And then off to Bend it is. They open up the season there on June 2nd, and we will get underway with the 23rd season in Apple Sox history. And with this 23rd season comes some other changes, and I I highlighted this a little bit early on, as there's going to be pace of play changes coming for this summer. And as I mentioned, let's go over to our interview now. I had a really good chance to chat with John White and talk about some of these changes that are coming to the West Coast League, which I think are going to be extremely positive for this 2023 season. John White is the supervisor of umpires for the West Coast League, and he joins us now here on the Apple Sox podcast, along with myself, Joel Norman, broadcaster for the Apple Sox. And John, we kind of want to talk to you about something that's been a hot topic, not just recently at the West Coast League, but also in baseball as a whole. Now, it's kind of been the pitch clock has been the title of it in major leagues. Now, what the West Coast League is going to institute this season is an action clock. I know some fans have heard a little bit about it to this point, but explain a little bit of what they can expect from it here in this 2023 season. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Happy to answer that question. So basically, uh, Major League Baseball and all levels of professional baseball are calling it a pitch clock, right? Uh, well, obviously, the the players that are competing in Wenatchee or in the entire West Coast League, they're all collegiate players. So in NCAA baseball, which is the rule set that we use in the WCL, uh, it's called an action clock, right? So uh, our rule in the league, and it's this has already been in place at all levels of NCAA baseball for the last three years or so, roughly. Uh, it's a 20-second action clock, right? Um, I know in, I think in Major League Baseball, it's 15 or 16 and 18 uh, along those lines. Uh, it's 20 seconds. So when the pitcher has the baseball, the ball's put in play. Uh, the pitcher has 20 seconds to be 
to begin his delivery, right? Um, and there's different there's different facets uh, of uh, when we stop the clock, when we start the clock, things like that. Uh, but it's 20 seconds with or without runners on base. So the biggest thing is then within those 20 seconds, they have to deliver the pitch. Is there any sort of violations in there the way we've seen in Major League Baseball? I believe it's been about you have the pitcher has to be set and ready at about eight seconds left on. Is there anything like that with the action clock or is it pretty much just making sure that play flows within those 20 seconds? Yeah, so pretty much, you know, I just I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes version because I know we don't want to get too too, too texty with the rule book. Right. Um but, you know, the pitcher has some basic obligations. You know, the pitcher has to begin their natural movement, which is associated with the delivery of the baseball to the batter before the 20-second action clock expires. So if we start with, uh, with, with no runners on base, the pitcher, once he has the – if I'm the plate umpire and I put that baseball on play with the first pitch of the game, he, has, he or she has 20 seconds to deliver the baseball. We can let the clock run down tonight, you know, with one second left. It runs for 19 seconds. Uh, they've got to start that delivery to deliver that baseball. Now, with runners on base, that's where things get interesting. So, with no runners on, if the pitcher fails to deliver that baseball within that 20-second allotment, one ball is added to the count. Uh, now, in prior seasons, like last year in college baseball, there was a uh, a warning per, per, per offense, right? There was a warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's straight one ball added to the count. With runners on base uh, – you get one reset per hitter, right? So a reset would be if you have R1 or you have a runner at first base, for those uh, that are not familiar with that term, uh, pitcher can step off the rubber, right? That's a disengagement as what you hear in in Major League Baseball or professional Mm -hmm. baseball. You're allowed one reset per hitter. So you step off, okay, boom, clock stops. We're going to reset the clock. If the catcher stands in front of home plate and gives defensive signals, that's considered a reset, right? Okay. The clock will then stop, and then as soon as the catcher returns to to their catcher's box, we will then restart the clock. Uh, if the penalty, if it's the same penalty with runners on or with runners on with with no runners on base, it's one ball added to the count. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, another interesting part of the twenty second action clock is batters. Batters have to be in the box and alert to the pitcher, ready to hit with 10 seconds remaining on the action clock, right? So that doesn't mean one foot in the box and one foot out of the box. We're fixing our batting gloves, you know, kind of going through our routine at at, at your own individual pace. We have mm-hmm. to be alert and in the box, you know, at that 10-second mark. There is a strike added to the count if that batter is not is not alert and ready to hit at the 10-second mark. Okay. Do you anticipate there will be warnings maybe early on that first week and a half of the season or so as teams are still kind of – because it's with the with the West Coast League season, obviously with that mix of players who are junior college, Division Division two and Division one. do you anticipate there will be more warnings earlier on instead of just going to adding a ball or adding a strike to account? That's a really good question. So, no, we're, we're going to be rolling right into the into the enforcement of this, of this action clock uh, and, or at least administering the violations. Here's why. Across all levels, whether you have, you know, because obviously the WCL is is a very one of the top collegiate leagues in the country. You have it's very unique. You have players that are from junior colleges all the way to Division One programs. Across all levels of college baseball, the twenty second action clock has been in use, right? So whether you play it at, at a school in the NWAC or you're playing in the Pac twelve, everybody 
is using the action clock. Now there's different, there's different variables in your power five. Most of your power five schools have visible action clocks. That's going to be a mandate across all levels of division one next year, the visible action clock. Right. And then in division two, I believe it's the 2025 season and it kind of rolls down from there, right down to the division three level. Um, but it, the time is being administered right now with uh, what we're going to use in the WCL is it's a it's called a ref smart timer, right? Because we don't have visible action clocks in the WCL. And it's a little box that at, at that 20, you know, at the at the 10 second mark, when the clock expires, it's a little box that you'll see like basketball officials wear, where it vibrates, right? Or in between innings with 30 seconds, there's a two minute timer in between innings, right? That's currently used in, in the WCL and in college baseball. With 30 seconds remaining, it vibrates. At 15, it'll vibrate. And then at zero, it'll vibrate. So that'll that'll be able to cue our umpires that are keeping time on the field when the when those benchmarks are, when we need to, you know, obviously call a violation, things like that. Uh, but I think to be honest with you, I don't I don't see there being a major transition or, or an adjustment period because it's already been in use. Mm -hmm. So the players are the players and the coaches are already gonna be accustomed to it. And obviously we're going to, we're going to, you know, be diligent in training our umpires from Canada all the way down to, to the States, as well as discussing the action clock with our managers and our coaches. Um, and we're going to do the best we can to try to educate, you know, those that may have questions that, that it hasn't been an issue. Um, you know, in some of their games, we're going to do what we can to educate all parties. Now, let me ask you about that buzzing you mentioned. Like the it's it's a watch you're saying that the umpires are wearing. No, it's called a ref smart timer. So okay. it's a it's, it's a wearable unit on the on the umpire's belt strap. Okay. And then you you it's it's a very it's not it's not very it's not a very advanced device. It's basically you're flicking a button up one direction is the in-between innings timer, down is the 20-second action clock. It vibrates at 10, which tells you, you know, obviously that that is the when the hitter has to be in the box and alert to the pitcher. And it'll vibrate at the end of the 20 second action clock. Okay. I see. So, so let's that... say if the pitchers, let's say you're on the you're on the mound, you're engaged with the rubber, and that 20 seconds expires. Well, that tells me you haven't you haven't started your delivery yet. Mm -hmm. We now have to call time and we have a violation. How have you seen players adjust in these situations where they don't have the visible pitch clock or action clock? How have you seen them? Because I imagine those first couple of times. If they're at a venue without the clock, it's got to be a little bit of a, an adjustment for them. And frankly, we're still even seeing it at other levels where it's still an adjustment for guys. But, you know, in a level like that, where if a team's going to come to Wenatchee, they're not going to have a visible action clock anywhere. How do how, how do guys how have you seen guys adjust, though, over time? Right, but, it, at, you know, kind of like I had touched on before, a sub power five, you know, excluding the power five schools. And, I, and obviously, I haven't been to every power five program, but I know that many power fives have that visible clock right mm -hmm. the the you know umpires either have been using a stopwatch or that ref smart device i've talked about they're already accustomed to it right mm -hmm. so those and it's basically just a change in behavior of when we're how fast we're getting to the you know how fast we're getting back in the box in between a pitch sure. right how fast we're once the pit once the catcher gets the baseball in the dirt circle they're just speeding their their timing up to getting that ball delivered to the batter right Mm -hmm. So that that change has already been has already happened, right? Because everybody's just about finished with their. We're in conference tournament season now for Division One, Division Two. We're we're already we're already past a regional, right? We're now heading to super regionals. Division Three, we're headed to super regionals. I know the NWAC has their tournament uh, coming up here. I think it's this week. Um, 
they everybody's been using it since February one, right? So mm -hmm. I I don't see that there's an adjustment. I think that everybody is adjusted. Um, you know, obviously, I I think at any level in officiating, let's let's just take the NBA for instance, right? I don't know how many how many games happen on a nightly basis, but there are different crews, and and a lot of rule book terminology is judgment based, right? Yep. So we can take that as a parallel to the action clock. It, I can't sit here and profess that the action clock across whether it's Major League Baseball all the way down to the NWAC has has been administered consistently across the board, right? Mm -hmm. I think I think there's certain situations when it comes to feel and situations in games, things like that, and we don't want to get too deep into that end, right? Sure. Um, but the players have been have 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 been using these protocols since day one of the 2023 college season. So for me, I don't think that there is an adjustment, right? I think that if, if it's already been used and they, they've started to change those behaviors of how, how quick they get in the box, how, how quick the pace is if you're a pitcher getting that ball delivered. I've seen the progression because I umpired Division I college baseball myself. I've seen that progression from the first week in a Division I non-conference play throughout the conference season, right, where now the players are starting to get back into the box quicker. They know they've got to deliver the baseball because time is ticking down on that action clock. Um, so I don't see there being a massive a, a adjustment or, or, you know, period. I think it's going to be pretty seamless. Now, if we were to adopt the MLB timing procedures, we're now doing something different that from what everybody did all season, right? Because they've already been doing the action clock procedures for college baseball. Now we're going to do the MLB timing. Then I could see there being merit that there's going to be an adjustment period. Um, but I think it's, I, I have, I have, I, I'm very confident that the, the the transition will be very seamless. How much have you seen it improve the college game? Because I think we see people have differing opinions on some of the stuff. Myself, I'm a big fan of it. I, I think it speeds it up. It gives you more game action, which is what you want. It cuts out a lot of that downtime in the games. How have you seen it improve the college baseball product, just from your experience umpiring? Well, to answer your question, honestly, I think improve is a, is a subjective opinion. Um what I may, what I may think individually, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what I think individually is is really unimportant. What I think is what is important is what's best for the for for our game, right? Which is college baseball or, or baseball in general. What's best for the game? Obviously, timing procedures are a hot topic in baseball right now, right? Um, you know, we all we all know what's coming next is strike zone, right? Like that's yeah. the next that's the next big thing. Um, I'm on board with whatever is best for our game um, and whatever is best for the game. And that's at the end of the day, whether I or anyone else in a position like mine or, or you or any other team personnel in any league across the country, it, it, it really, you know, we're not the decision makers, right? So at the end of the day, we adapt or we die, right? Um, so whatever's best for the game, I'm, I'm good with. And, and, you know, with my, with my, I'm very, thankful and appreciative of the position I have in the West Coast League. Um, I'm going to do the best I can to prepare the officials that are working these games to enforce those timing procedures. Um, you know, I we just want to make we we want to just make this as seamless as we can for the league, the players and the coaches and the fans, to be quite honest. I want to go back to those resets really quickly. I thought of I had another question with those. You talked about guys getting the one uh, so quote unquote disengagement or opportunity to step out and ask for time. Now, do any visits to the mound, maybe from the dugout, does that work in? Do you only get one of those per plate appearance? Is there any limit on those per inning now? 
That's a great question. So uh, we have we have not changed anything with defensive or offensive conferences. Um, we okay. we mirror NCAA baseball. So each team gets six defensive conferences throughout the game. Three of those can include a manager and or pitch like a pitching coach, things like that. So uh, those that doesn't change, right? Uh, what what an interesting part of uh, let's say the timing of how this applies to the timing procedures. If a hitter asks for time, right? There, there are two ways this goes. If it's for a legitimate reason, let's say you're playing in City X and the bugs are really bad. The ballpark's by the river. Hitter gets a bug in his eye. Well, hey, hey, I need to get time, right? I've got a, I've got a bug in my eye. We're going to grant time and we're not going to charge anything to the hitter, right? Mm-hmm. If it's because the hitter feels rushed because the pitcher's pace is really quick or the pitcher's pace is slow and it's throwing a hitter off and they just want time because they're not happy with the progression of the at-bat, yeah. we're now going to charge an offensive conference. Now that team has three offensive conferences, right? Mm-hmm. That is something I've seen change in in baseball this year, where in, in, at least at the collegiate game, where hitters are not asking for time really anymore. Because Why is that, you ask? Well, they're not going to burn up all their team's offensive conferences, right? Mm-hmm. So anything that is a non-legitimate reason, um, if it's a legitimate reason, we're not going to charge an offensive conference. If it's non-legitimate, which is subjective and in our judgment, right? Yeah, uh, we're going to train our umpires to have good judgment in those situations and use common sense, right? Um, you know, so that is one thing: is that is that we don't just grant time. You can't just have time five times, right? Yeah. Um, there's a penalty for for getting that time is that you're going to be charged with a conference for a non-legitimate reason. I see. So if it's, you know, a hitter's in there for a second and maybe he just, like you said, wants to step out, calls time, that's one offensive conference, per, even if no one right, else If you just want time and you just, you just need time to compose yourself, okay, time, that's an offensive conference. That's one. You'll see the umpires take their notepads out. They're going to write down that trip. They're going to inform that offensive team's manager. Hey, Joel, hey, that's your first offensive conference. Right. And then we're going to let the visiting team's manager know as well. Um, same thing if there's a defensive conference. Catcher wants to go and and talk to his pitcher because he's walked four straight up struck four straight hitters, things like that. Um, you'll see the umpires, you know, let each dugout know what what that you know conference number is. But in relation to the action clock, um that does Yeah, that's know. definitely got a big factor. And you said six for the defensive six conferences? defensive conferences, three offensive conferences. Okay, interesting, interesting. What's it been like preparing umpires for the West Coast League for the the action clock? I imagine that preparation has gone really similar to everyone else at the college level with how you prepare them for that. What's maybe some of the the challenges with getting guys ready for that because it is relatively new? Well, I think I think it's uh I wouldn't say challenges because we have a percentage of our staff of our full-time staff at least so in the United States, we have five full-time traveling crews. And actually, we're adding a six that is going to travel uh, part-time this year. Um, a, a percentage of that of the staff stateside were college baseball from the Division One down to the Division Three level and NWAC level. Um, so they're familiar with those timing procedures. Educating our Canadian umpires, which we have, we have a large roster in Canada that work high-level baseball in Canada. Um, they have not used timing procedures. And then obviously educating our, our younger umpires who just got out of professional umpire school or maybe went to the MLB umpire prospect development camp. Um, though that crop of umpires are future minor league umpires, hopefully, right. They're, they're working to achieve that level. So educating, you know, the umpires that are, that have not worked with an action clock in college baseball, it's not a challenge. It's just, 
I think in anything, you know, you, you yourself are a broadcaster, right? Um, there, there's a certain level of time and dedication you have to give to your craft to mm-hmm. make it to advance and get better and refine your skills. It's the same thing with, with officiating at any level or any sport. Um, it's, you know, how much time are you putting in studying the, the protocols and the rules of the timing procedures? And then obviously you've got to go out and you've got to, you've got to have live game action and see them happen for the first time. So it, it, you know, my, my hope is that is we have perfection. Uh, will we have perfection? I can't promise that. I think there is going to be an adjustment period um, for all parties involved, but I think it will be a seamless adjustment period. I, I don't, I, I think it'll, it'll, you know, just things will clean themselves up very quickly. You mentioned some of the uh, the crews this year expanding. There's another one that's going to be there. Is it still going to be two man crews in the U.S. and typically three in Canada, or is it any changes with that? Yeah. So for the 2023 season, uh, Canadian games will utilize the re-umpires. Uh, you know, I've had some very good discussions with Rob uh, and with the executive committee. I feel very strongly that we will go to uh, the, the re-umpire crews in the, in the United States, uh, hopefully next season. Uh, the okay. goal is to have every WCL game with, with three umpires. Okay. Well, I, I think that's, that's obviously the more, the better in a lot of ways, because it's tough sometimes when it's two, I, I imagine that's, that's a tough situation. You've only got one other guy really with you. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think I understand that that pressure, that that can be sometimes when, when you have guys who are going, or they're used to being, they're planning to be a two man crew for a season What's maybe one of the biggest messages you'll give them for that? Because it's a little bit different. You know, on the appeals, you're going to usually the guy on the base paths, if there's someone on the bases at the time, too, instead of going to maybe the first base or third base side. But what are some of the things that you've maybe, maybe some tips you've given to guys when they're working just a two-man crew? Well, I think the biggest thing that I think from a from a uh, maybe a team or a fan standpoint is – the two umpire system is the hardest system to work in all of baseball. Why is that? Well, if you go to a major league game, most regular, all regular season major league games are have four umpires. They have a four umpire system that they're running. You have better coverage of plays on bases. You have better coverage of fly balls on catch, no catches, right? When you're utilizing the two umpire system, it, it is, there are so many angles of, of how to take plays and things like that, that you cannot, you can't get. If you have a bases loaded situation, you have one umpire in the infield, right? And you have a plate umpire. So we, we've got what if we have a deep fly ball? That could be a trouble ball in the outfield. So trouble ball is going to be below the waist, right? Converging outfielders, boundary call, right? We have three tag ups. We got two umpires on the field for three tag ups, right? Yeah. I'm not going to go down the wormhole. But there are, there are situations where play, you know what I mean? It's just three umpires will 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 be a good uh direction for the league to move into when when we do get to that point um because it's it's more eyes on the field uh, and there's more coverage for plays so i'm excited to, you know hopefully it'll be in the 2024 season i do believe that we're we're getting close to it um and and when that time is right for all wcl league games to have three umpires it will happen um i think what i can tell you is our umpires that are working uh, the two umpire system are highly trained umpires that have been to, to professional umpire school. They work college baseball. They have training. Because here's the thing. If you work the three or the four umpire system, we all start with the two umpire system, right? Yep. If you if you have three umpires and you have no runners on base and the first base umpire goes out on a fly ball, what system are you working now? You're working the two umpire system, right? 
Yeah. So um, the two umpire systems, the base, the baseline for everything else that you go into. Gotcha. So you've been with the West Coast League since 2018. Uh, talk to me about some of the progression we've seen of some of the umpires who've come from this league and maybe moved on since then, because I always like to tell fans too, much like the players, the umpires are also really trying to progress in their career in the sport as well. It is. I, I truly see, I, I truly believe the WCL is, if, if it's not the top summer collegiate league in the country, it is one of the top summer collegiate leagues. Uh, in addition to the WCL, I'm also an umpire supervisor with the Northwoods League, right? My mission is is obviously we want to put the best umpires on the field for WCL baseball, right? That's my goal. At the same time, it's a developmental league just like it is for the players that are going to go back and hopefully improve their playing time or their draft stock or co assistant coaches that are trying to move up the coaching ladder, right? Uh, right now, we've got Brandon Schmidt, who umpired in the WCL, I believe it was in 2019. Um, he's now in the Carolina League in minor league baseball, right? WCL alumni. Um, we've, we, I think we've got two umpires that have worked in the WCL in the last five years that are now minor league baseball. We've got Matt Van Houten who worked in the WCL last year. He's now full-time in the frontier league. And I believe Matt's going to be going to the MLB umpire prospect development camp next January in Vero beach to hopefully become a minor league umpire. We've got umpires that have moved on to division one conference level baseball in the last five years that I've worked in the WCL moved on to division two uh, to the NWAC. Right. So the, the goal is, is to help people advance their careers. Vinny Mariani worked in the WCL last year. He's in the Atlantic league this year. They're an MLB partner league, just like the frontier league. So I, I, I get really excited when, when umpires, you know, utilize the WCL for what it's for, which is development. Um, and to go out and, and advance their careers. That's exciting for me. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I, I think we've got a really good crop of young umpires and experienced umpires this year that we may have this conversation again in a, in a year and we're going to have a, you know, a few more minor league umpires and a few, few more division one, division two umpires. I would love to hear that. I mean, I love hearing those. I recognize some of those names just from doing games the last couple of years. So exciting to see that they don't always get the same spotlight the players do in this league. So I thought I'd ask you about that. So you know, John, really appreciate the time here. I think this helped clarify some stuff with the rules and what fans can expect if they're not already familiar with the action clock. And I know you're going to be monitoring this a lot throughout the season. So, But thank you for your time here explaining to us. I appreciate your time, and I wish, uh, wish, wish you and the Apple Sox a great season as well as the entire West Coast League. That was John White, the supervisor of umpires for the West Coast League. He's been in this role since 2018. He leads the umpire placement course, which sends its umpires to the West Coast League. He assigns them over the course of the summer. You might have heard him mention it as well during our chat. Also does that for the Northwoods League as well, and he's done a great job. He talked about some of the advancement of the guys at the end, and I, I really I think the most interesting thing that came from our discussion to me was the, you know, the key points with that pace of play that's coming here this season. I, I think the big thing to note is that there's going to be those two minutes in between innings, in between half innings, and that's something that's kind of been in – it's not necessarily been fully enforced before. It's been in place. I think it's, for the most part it has been, but not 100%. It sounds like that's going to be something they're going to try and make more of an emphasis here this season. But the other things to really keep an eye on are that 20-second action clock. Again, this isn't necessarily the pitch clock – that we see in Major League Baseball. This is something that's going to be used to make sure that play continues to flow. 
Hitters have to be in the batter's box ready to hit with at least 10 seconds remaining or a strike will be called in the at-bat, and pitchers must be in the process of delivering the pitch before the clock expires or a ball will be called in the at-bat. If a runner's on base, pitchers will be allowed one step off or fake throw to a base per batter to reset the clock as well. So this is certainly going to ramp up that stolen base efforts, I would imagine. You're going to probably see some more teams trying to take advantage of that, really get going on the base paths, because that's something we saw last year. Uh, of course, the Apple Sox had Joichiro Oyama break the single-season stolen base record with 42 steals uh, for the Apple Sox. But you also saw other records shattered. I, I believe, if I'm remembering right, I'm checking the scorebook uh, as we speak right now, but I'm pretty sure that the single-season stolen base record by a team was also snapped. In fact, it was not quite. There were 146 steals by the Victoria Harbor Cats back in 2022. But if I'm remembering right, the Corvallis Knights had themselves a pretty good year in terms of running the bases. So I wouldn't be surprised if that 146 mark is is shattered here this season. So we'll have to see if that comes about or not. But one way or another, this is a great way to speed up the game, but also encourage more action, something we've seen a lot at the major league level. So keep an eye on that. In fact, no, that record was broken. The previous record that had been set by the Victoria Harbor Cats was, was snapped. They had 149 steals last year. 149 stolen bases. So wouldn't be surprised if we see at least maybe a team or two get to that 150 mark this season with a limit on those number of times you can throw over to first base. But it's going to be interesting. I think the time of games, this is something that had to improve in the West Coast League. And you know I'll spare everyone the full details of it. But I kind of did something this offseason. I kind of dug into those the game time from the 2022 Wenatchee Apple Sox season. The average game time of an Apple Sox WCL game last year, two hours and 55 minutes. Now, let's put this all into context. The average Major League Baseball game in 2022 was three hours and four minutes. Now, that's a little bit longer, of course, than the Apple Sox games were, but consider this. Major League Baseball has paid TV timeouts, of course, in between the half innings, slots they have to fill. You have plenty of other theatrics that go into a Major League Baseball game. The West Coast League is about as down-to-earth, I would say, as it is. This is some great baseball you see over the course of the summer, but it really brings baseball back to its roots and what it kind of used to look like as well. So the fact that it was about nine minutes shorter, the Apple Sox average game time is nine minutes shorter than the average game time of Major League Baseball a summer ago, that's not good. And that's something that has to change one way or another. I think this pitch clock is going to, the action clock, I should call it, is going to have a great effect because we've seen what the pitch clock did for Major League Baseball. In the first week of this 2023 season, they already improved the game time. It was down to two hours and 38 minutes in an article written by ESPN. Of course, again, three hours and four minutes last year, and then down to two hours and 38 minutes. I think we're at a point, I could be wrong. I think we're at a point, if you watch games, you don't even think about the pitch clock at this point. If you've been watching since opening day, we're into late May now. It's it's not something you realize that much, not something you're accounting for too much, because for the most part, the game just flows better, and it's really helped out the sport as a whole, at least in my opinion. I'm looking forward to it here uh, this summer with uh, the West Coast League. The one thing that could be interesting, uh, there's two things. I'll start with this. The first thing is I, I asked John White about this specifically, he said he's not expecting to issue a lot of warnings, that his umpires won't be issuing a ton of warnings to players early on in the season. 
I was a little surprised to hear that one because while players at the junior college level and the NWAC out here in the Pacific Northwest and maybe some of those D3, D2 players as well, a lot of them have already used this action clock in parks where there have not been a visible clock for them to see how much time is remaining. So to that extent, they have gotten used to it. They're familiar with working with it and knowing when they need to be ready to go and when the violations will be called against them. So that is something that I understand. You know, they, They're aware of that for the most part. But many of the Division One hitters who are going to be coming out here to the West Coast League have not probably... Have for the most part, have probably not been in parks that don't have the clock. So I imagine there's going to be an adjustment period from them, but it sounds like the umpires can be pretty harsh on that initially. They're going to they're going to give those, you know, if you're not ready to go, then they're going to give you violations. You might be a strike added to your at-bat, or if you're a pitcher, it's going to be a ball added if you're not ready to go when you're supposed to be. So that's going to be interesting to follow uh, over the course of the summer, how that's going to work out. And I think the other thing to look at is going to be these these in-game timeouts that the teams get. Now, I don't know how many people are familiar with this. There are six defensive timeouts that the teams are able to use. Now, that includes a trip to the mound, maybe an infielder going to talk to the mound to chat with the pitcher a little bit. You get six of those over the course of the game. And, you, I mean, you have those over the course that don't result in any sort of substitution. So any violations, in a sense, you can kind of use some of those, but if you sense a violation could be coming. But as a hitter, you know you only get three timeouts for an offensive timeout, so to speak. Those are accounting for each time the hitter requests time, whether it's you know to step out of the box, to readjust batting gloves, or speak with a coach. You've only got a few of those over the course of the game, so it's extremely valuable to take advantage of those. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this this action clock affects things. In those nature, the people I talked about who aren't going to be as familiar with it as well and as, as the people who, who have played in situations where there are clocks, now you're going to a situation where there is not a visible clock. I'm really curious how players will adjust to that change, and I'm curious about the high scores. I don't know how many of these high scores, if any, have been in a situation where they've played with an action clock. They're going to come here. There is no visible clock for them to know when they need to be ready. In a lot of ways, I think early on, it's going to be on these umpires to kind of make it clear, but it's also going to be on the players to make it very obvious, to make adjustments. And that's something I'm curious to see how it evolves over the course of the summer. I think there's no doubt the game time is going to change, but it's a matter of how much does it mess with the flow, how long does it take for these younger players to get used to it. So we'll see how that works over the course of the summer. This is the right age to do it at, though. If you want major leaguers to be comfortable with this at some point, why not get the players who are on their way to getting to the major leagues to try and get ready? So looking forward to seeing how that goes this summer. Curious about all the fans' opinions, too. I think it's easy to get a little skeptical about it at first, but I think this is going to be a really good thing for the West Coast League once we work out some of those kinks at the start of this season. So that about does it for this one for the Wenatchee Apple Sox podcast. We're real close here, opening day right around the corner. And for those of you who've been listening all off season, we appreciate you. And I hope you are subscribed already because it's going to get really fun here. Once we start with the season, we're going to have daily podcasts every time the Apple Sox have a game. Now, what you can expect after each Apple Sox game will be a recap of that night's action, as well as any interviews from that day, whether it's a post-game or pre-game interviews, chance to hear from them. And we'll even toss in some of the game's highlights over the course of the night as well. So it'll be a fun way for you to keep up with a team, whether you're here in Wenatchee over the course of this full summer, or perhaps away, a family member, a friend, or whoever that might be. It's going to be a great way to follow along with the team. It's a two-and-a-half-month sprint. 
but it's such a fun and great way to play the game. I think this is the thing. I just told a fan this the other day. The summer collegiate baseball season is the first true test for these guys, the players, that is, and even the coaches to an extent. The first test of how much they love the sport of baseball. If they want to compete at the next level, it's going to be a schedule like this. And I think sometimes we see guys each summer who they, they eat it up, they love it, you can't get enough baseball. And then you see some guys who they, they, they're a little tired. And everyone at times is going to want breaks in their job. But you see maybe that passion for the game fade a little bit. So as I said before, you're going to learn a lot about who loves the game of baseball and who really wants to continue pursuing this as a possible career. So looking forward to that and looking forward to you tuning in over the course of the season on our podcast as well as each game. They'll be broadcast live on on Sunny FM locally here in Wenatchee, 93.9 FM, or wherever you are worldwide. You can listen online, kcsyfm.com, or online, or on the TuneIn app, I should say. Just search Sunny FM, and you can listen to it right there, whether on your computer, whether on your phone. Hope to have you tuning in. Most games will start at 635, and hope you can catch some of those here over the course of the summer. That'll do it for this podcast. I'm Joel Norman. We will talk to you next week. We'll probably have one more podcast before the start of the season. But if not, then you'll hear from us on June 2nd after the opening day game against the Bend Elks. Thanks for tuning in to the Wenatchee Apple Sox podcast. If you enjoyed it and don't already, please subscribe to get updates on our newest episodes. Make sure to like the Apple Sox on Facebook and follow at Apple Sox on Twitter or Instagram. Wenatchee Apple Sox Baseball, celebrating summer one inning at a time.